6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Let's get back to 1 Thessalonians, up to verse 16, chapter 4. Okay. Here he starts. Paul says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven, doesn't say come to the earth, shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. He's going to continue here. A shout. That's a shout of command. And it's just like we had in chapter 11 with Lazarus. Remember Christ, they have him sealed there, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Do you know why he said Lazarus, come forth? Otherwise, they all would have. What do you think that shout is going to be for? I would not be surprised if each one of us hear our name when he shouts. But that's just a suspicion on my part. The Lord himself will send from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. Wow. Now, we could go into shouts on the Damascus Road and all that, but let's just keep moving here. Uh, the voice of the archangel. That's not necessarily Michael, as in it is in Jude 9, but it might be. And we could talk all about Michael's role. He's a warrior of the Lord's host. And the battle, he battles with the forces of darkness on behalf of Israel. So a lot of this even probably happened even before Eden, but that gets into this whole gap theory business and all that. It certainly has to do with Ephesians 6 and the armor of God and also the peculiar glimpse we get of that invisible world in Daniel chapter 10 and passages like that. So uh, there's a whole, this is a whole deviant study here. Those of you that want to get into it can get into it if you want. But with a trump of God. Now boy, has this caused misunderstandings. What trump is this? It's the trump of God. Where do we see the trump? Not the trump of angels, trump of God. We only find that twice in the Bible. We find it here and in Exodus 19 when the, at Sinai when the law was given. The trump of God. And it's only here and there. Now what a lot of people want to do, they want to make that trump of God a trumpet judgment. You should not confuse that phrase by Paul here as with the seven trumpet judgments of the book of Revelation. Those are angels sounding those trumpets, and they, they sequence seven specific events there. They don't assemble anyone. This is an assembly trumpet. Those are not. They are not symbols of salvation. They are not symbols of deliverance. They are symbols of judgments on a Christ-rejecting world in, in Revelation chapter 8 and following. Now, what about the last trump of 1 Corinthians 15? We're going to encounter that in the passage shortly. The last trump, the trump of 1 Corinthians 15 that we're about to encounter is not the last trump in the Bible. It's the last of a series, but not the last trump in the Bible. Why? Because there are also a trump that calls the elect in Matthew 24, 31. There are also trumpets blown for a thousand years through the millennium. 
So when you say the last trump, you don't mean the last forever. You mean the last of a series. Big difference here. And uh, we have a whole study of the Feast of Trumpets in our Feast of Israel grieving package. So now we get to verse 17, and this is the biggie. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them. Who's them? The dead in Christ that rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord on the earth? No, in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. We will not pass through death. This last generation. Now here's this, they shall be caught up. The word in the Hebrew, excuse me, in the Greek, is harpazo. It means to seize, to snatch away by a force which cannot be resisted. That's what the word harpazo in the Greek means. It's not going to be a choice. Hey guys, come on. You want to come along? No, no. He is going to snatch you out. That's why Hal Lindsey loves to call it the great snatch, you know. Well, it is. That's good Greek, actually. Okay? The word is used as when a centurion orders his troops to take Paul by the force in order to rescue him from a possible lynching. In Acts 23, centurion actually saves his life by arresting him, snatches him away from the mob that's about to kill him. The term there is harpazo. Same word. Now in the Latin, in the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible, it's a derivative of rupturo. And so, uh, now clouds, by the way, we could go into a whole study of clouds, but they always, whenever there's a theophany, an appearance of Christ, there's always clouds. It was at Sinai when the law was given. It's in the, when the tabernacle was established in Exodus 40, Solomon's temple. Uh, we see that several times. And clouds and darkness always surround him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. The transfiguration had clouds in Matthew 17. And of course, at the ascension, he ascends up into the cloud. So that shouldn't surprise us. We could the church will be removed as suddenly and as mysteriously as it began. And that's what we're seeing here. So we're right now in this whole thing called the rapture. And as I, I, I like, I'm fond of admitting uh, that this would seem to be the most preposterous belief of biblical Christianity. The word is arpazo. That's in the Greek. And we're going to divide this study into the promise of it, the process that's going to be used, the purpose of it, the prophetic profile that points to it, the problems with it, and the proposal. Now you can tell that this is a seminary-sanctioned presentation because of the alliteration. They all start with P, so they must be true, right? <laughs> and I'm being, I'm being facetious, of course, because I'm always, I'm always amused at how people try to get alliteration in their sermon outlines. Well, I'm guilty of that here because it seemed to fit, so I can't help but poke fun at myself for the alliteration that we see here. So we're going to go through each one of these as we go here now. But I, I love to start this discussion with a quote by Richard Feynman, uh, who's the, the, one of the most prominent particle physicists on the planet Earth. And he makes an interesting statement about particle physics that I can't resist sticking in here. He says, I think it's safe to say that no one understands quantum mechanics. In fact, it is often stated of all the theories proposed in this century... The silliest is quantum theory. Some say that the only thing that quantum theory has going for it, in fact, is that it is unquestionably correct. <laughs> and that, that's, that's a typical form of Richard Feynman's hu humor. But that same attitude could be applied to the rapture. Because it is obviously the most preposterous doctrine of biblical Christianity. 
The only thing it's got going for us, and I think I'll show you why, it's unquestionably scriptural. So let's start with the promise. We find that in John 14 at the upper room. What does Jesus say there? He starts out by saying, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Okay. Then he continues, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Wow! How long has he been preparing this place? Better part of 19 centuries? He created the universe in six days. Wonder, wow, this has got to be something, huh? He says, to whom is he doing this? You. I would have told you. I prepare a place for you. For you. Receive you. That there ye may be also. Who's the subject of that whole discourse? You are. Wow. Well, what's the process? How is he going to do this? Well, that's what we're encountering here in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with them. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And that's where, of course, we... Now, in the Latin, by the way, this is the Latin Vulgate. And that word, rapimira, is a, the word rapture. It's, a, it's the proper verbalization of it here in, in the Latin. And it's, a, it's, a, it's the proper tense of rapio, our English word rapt or rapture come from the past participle of rapio. So when they really, I don't find rapture in the Bible. That's because you don't have a Latin Bible, okay? So that's not the issue here. There are actually seven raptures in the Scripture. Did you know that? Enoch was raptured in Genesis 5. Elijah was raptured in 2 Kings 2. Jesus is raptured several times. Mark 16, Acts 19, Revelation 12, verse 5. That's a surprising one we'll look at later. Philip in Acts 8. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, body of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4. Those are technically raptures. And John in Revelation 4.1, he's caught up into heaven in the first verse of Revelation. Now, these particular passages right here actually use the word arpazo, incidentally. Revelation 12.5, Acts 8, and so forth. So the same word is used. Doesn't mean they're all the same kind of rapture, don't misunderstand me, but that's what the term is used to capture this being snatched away thing. The Revelation 2.5 one's an interesting because it speaks of the woman that, has a, that brings forth a man-child, which of course is Israel bringing forth uh, the Messiah, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron that identifies him. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And that word caught up is rapture. It was G.H. Uh, Pembler uh, that uh, first recognized the possibility that might also be referring simultaneously not just to the ascension, but to the rapture of the church. But that gets into a whole other thing. So what's the purpose of all this? Okay. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has the famous resurrection chapter in the Bible. And Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. 
Now the word mysterion in the Greek means here is something that up till now was not known, I'm now revealing it to you. That's what it, it, it's not mystery as we think of it. It's more like divulging a password or something. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Wow. In the twinkling of... That's not on a wink. That's not a wink. The twinkling of an eye. At the speed of light, transversing your iris. How much is that? 10 to the minus 43 seconds. There is by definition in science no period of time shorter than that. That is the Planck length of time. 10 to the minus 43 seconds. So I, I, that's, that's I, I, I think we're dealing with a hyper-dimensional switch here. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immorality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And Paul is not quoting the Old Testament here. He's quoting Greek poets, by the way. But let's move on. The physics of immortality. We have studies about dimensionality. I probably bored many of you with those in the past. When we talk about 1 John 3, 2, we get into that whole idea of whatever dimensionality Jesus has, we'll enjoy because we don't see a representation. We see what actually is there. But there's also a word that appears only twice in the Bible. The word is okaterion. It occurs in 2 Corinthians 5, 2, and also in Jude 5. See, the, the, the John thing is, beloved, now are we the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're not going to be three-dimensional people seeing a two-dimensional representation. Nor are we going to be three-dimensional people seeing a four-dimensional representation. No. Whatever he is, that's what we're going to be, because we shall see him as he is, is the point. That's actually a dimensionality statement that we're seeing there. But in 1 Corinthians 5, it says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, this temporary tent that we're dwelling in, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. You see, the term there, the house there is Okaterian. It's the same thing that the angels would send in Genesis 6, disrobe themselves of in Jude 6. In Jude 6 we see, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So these angels that are incarcerated because of the mischief they indulged in in Genesis 6 had shed their, this uh, Okaterian, if you will. Same word, technical word, only appears twice in the Bible. The first estate, majesty of angels, and so forth. But it's the habitation, Ogaterian or dwelling, that we're dealing with here. Getting back, 2 Corinthians 5 says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. So again, it's, it's clothed upon. That's where we get the idea of a habit and so on. But there's another place, another thing here I want to get across, and that's the model of the ancient Jewish wedding. It starts with a ketubah, the, a betrothal, where there's a payment for a purchase price for the bride. 
And she then is set apart. She's sanctified, set apart. The bridegroom departs to his father's house, prepares a room addition in his father's house. The bride prepares for his imminent return. She doesn't know when he's coming back. He's gone to do that. But she has to be ready at any moment for him to show up. That's what the word imminent really means. This gets to a doctrine of imminence we find in the New Testament. I'm talking about imminent, which means the next expectation. Don't confuse it with two similar words that mean something quite different. Not to be confused with eminent, that's with an A, eminent, that God is not only transcendent far above us, but that he's always with us and active on our behalf. Means he's always present with us. That's not what we're talking about here. Nor should it be confused with eminent in the sense of a title of honor. Those are two words that sound very similar. They're totally different. Eminent means what's next to be expected. The doctrine of eminence. Believers are taught throughout the New Testament to expect the Savior from heaven at any moment. He could interrupt this meeting. He might come back before we even through this evening. Or it might be years away. We don't know. In Philippians 3.20, Titus 2.13, Hebrews 9.28, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 4.18, 5.6, Revelation 2.10. These are just a sampling all through the New Testament. You clearly get the idea we were taught to expect him at any moment. That, that concept is called the doctrine of eminency. There's nothing that has to take place in the way. There are a lot of things that may happen, but they, not, nothing that needs to happen to precede him returning. This expresses the hope and the warm spirit of expectancy. And that's the 1 Thessalonians 1.10 passage. And this all should result in a victorious and purified life. By putting us in that position, he's expecting that to be the purification. We're expecting him to come at any moment. That means we ought to be behaving ourselves, not abusing that, okay? That's what 1 John 3, 2 and 3 is all about. Paul seemed to conclude himself among those who look for Christ's return. We see that here in this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to see it again in 2 Thessalonians when we get there. Timothy was admonished to keep his, his commandment without spot or unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Timothy, his protege, was taught to expect him at any moment. 1 Timothy 6. Jewish conference reminded that yet a little while and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. The book in the epistle of the Hebrews. Jesus himself said, occupy till I come. See, the problem was the expectation of some were so strong they stopped work. Had to be exerted. He went up on a hilltop and waited for him to come back. You know, there's been those kind of characters all through history. Make fools of themselves. No, Jesus said, occupy till I come. See, they, they, they had to be exhorted to return to their jobs in 2 Thessalonians 3. We'll see that when we get there. And James, to have patience. Not, not to, you know, to, to, yes, he's coming at any moment, but in the meantime, you're supposed to be occupying. You should be sending your kids to college. They should be planning careers, even though you're totally convinced that Jesus is going to come a week from Tuesday. No, 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 don't set dates. So there's two extremes that we encounter from this doctrine. What I call rapture-itis, Okay. And that's paralysis because you're expecting the rapture to come next Tuesday so you don't mow the lawn or whatever, you know. The other is rapture mania. That goes the other way. Where you, you know, you, these guys that set dates, we're, prohi we're prohibited from setting dates. And yet there's all, I get manuscripts every week from somebody who's calculated the phase of the moon or whatever and he's convinced that the, he's got it all figured out, you know. The Mayan calendar. No, no, no. I won't even go there. Okay. Rapturitis. You know, that's a uniquely American dementia. Just because 
The church will not go through the great tribulation, and we're going to take that up when we get to 2 Thessalonians 2. The church will not go through that unique period of time, great tribulation. Where do we get the arrogance to assume that we should escape what most of the body of Christ in most of the world has had to endure for most of the last 2,000 years? Where do we get the arrogance for that? Christ promises persecution. Call that tribulation with a small t. Most of the body of Christ and most of the world for most of the last 2,000 years had to endure this. Where do we get the arrogance to think we're not going to? Well, if we look around now, we begin to see it starting, don't we? Okay. The, then there's the date setters. Joachim of Flores had it all figured out, 1260. Millets and Cromerus and Joseph Mead in 1660. John Napier, the famous mathematician, had his theory in 1688. And we go on and on and on with these guys all throughout history set dates. And William Miller in 1843, and he found that was wrong, so he moved it to 1844, and it, didn't, it still didn't happen. C.T. Russell in 1874. Wisenance, 88 Reasons for 1988. The copies of that book are very inexpensive these days. And uh, Harold Camping back in 1994. And there's more coming. With, now that we're in a new millennium, you're going to have all kinds of people. Well, it's going to be 2012, you know, and so on. So I won't start. Those are all pagan sources. Nostradamus, pagan sources. Totally unreliable. Matthew 24, 36, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but the Father only. In fact, in the Mark rendering of that, not the Son, but the angels, but the Father only. Matthew 24, 48, Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. So if you've got a time that you know he's not coming, watch out. That might, that, you know, anyway, all right. Matthew 25, 13, watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Luke 12, 40, be therefore ready also for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. That's Luke's rendering of it. Acts 1, 7, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. You know, what does Jesus have to do to get across to us? He doesn't want a state setting. Now, if we study the return of Christ and we capture, if you take the trouble to try to catalog all the verses you can find on the return of Christ, you'll discover that they fall into two groups. I'm going to call one group the second coming, where he comes in power to set up his kingdom on the earth. And if we had the time, we could go through each one of these. They'll be in your notes if you want to go through, and I encourage you to do that to go through each one of these, and you'll see clearly that those verses talk about him returning to the earth, setting up every eye shall see him, and so forth. There's a whole bunch of those. You'll also discover there's another bunch that are just the opposite of that. He doesn't come to the earth, he comes in the air. He does, not everybody sees him, only those that are saved do, and you would discover they're different. And we could go through all of these one by one. I encourage you to do that on your own. They'll be in your notes, of course. Let me summarize them for you another way. There are two events. That second group, I'm going to call the rapture. The first group, the second coming. In the rapture, there's the translation of the believers. The second coming, there's no translation involved. Not mentioned in those passages. In the rapture, the translated saints go to heaven. In the second coming, translated saints are with them to return to the earth. Well, wait a minute, that's opposite, isn't it? In the rapture, there's no judgment of the earth yet. The second coming, boy, there certainly is, okay? The rapture is imminent, can happen at any moment. There are no signs that precede it. 
The second coming follows definite predicted signs. There's a 70th week of Daniel. In the middle of the week, there's a mid-course correction opportunity. There's more. De- there's all kinds of detail that have to precede his return. The battle of Armageddon, all of that. The Antichrist, all these things precede. We're going to sort that through when we get to 2 Thessalonians. But now, the, the general view by most scholars is the rapture is not mentioned in the Old Testament. I'm going to let you judge that for yourself before the evening's over. I'll show you some things that you can come to your own conclusion. But clearly the second coming is predicted throughout the Old Testament, in any case. And the, I'm going to suggest even if the rapture is too, but it's sort of hidden. I'll show you that. The rapture is for believers only. The second coming affects all men on the earth. That's quite different, isn't it? Okay. The rapture occurs before the day of wrath. The second coming concludes the day of wrath. The absolute opposites. The rapture has no mention of Satan. The second coming, Satan's bound for a thousand years. The rapture, he comes for his own. The second coming, he comes with his own. Those are quite distinctively different. In the rapture, he comes in the air. In the second coming, he comes to the earth. He sets up his kingdom on the earth. It's got a capital. You can find the floor plan of his palace in the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel. The rapture, he claims his bride. Second coming, he comes with his bride. Ooh, that's different. In the rapture, only his own see him. It's interesting, Jesus, after, his, after the cross, Jesus is only handled by loving hands. And he's only seen by loving eyes. In the second coming, every eye shall see him. Rapture is, precedes the great tribulation. We'll talk about that in, the, in a later session of, of our epistles. The second coming, the millennium begins. The rapture, church believers only. And the second coming, most people, most scholars believe that the Old Testament saints are resurrected then, not at the rapture, at the second coming. That's why John the Baptist is a friend of the bridegroom and so forth. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.